Welcome to Just Us for Justice from Consumer Attorneys of California. I'm CAOC Press Secretary J.G. Preston. The coronavirus pandemic has led to changes in California's courts, the likes of which we've never seen before. With me to talk about these changes and other matters related to the pandemic are CAOC President Micah Starr-Liberty and CAOC CEO and Chief Lobbyist Nancy Drabble. Greetings to you both. Hi, J.G. Thanks for having us. Hi, J.G. Wonderful to be here. CAOC has been advocating to the Judicial Council for emergency rules to address the court closures, and we've had a number of them uh, come down so far. What have we accomplished so far, Nancy, uh, Micah? Well, Gigi, I want to start from the beginning to provide context to the listeners, because I think the history of how we got here is very important. So as many people know, on March 15th, the six Bay Area counties in the city of Berkeley issued the nation's first shelter in place. With that, the Contra Costa County Superior Court shut its doors. They were the first to um, leave the building and they were the first to suspend all court business. Three days later, the governor issued the statewide shelter in place um, and therefore many courts followed. Um, The very next day on the 19th, our Chief Justice issued an advisory Um, where she suggested that all the staff be sent home for 60 days um, and no trials uh, commence for 60 days. Three days later, she then sent out another advisory where she indicated that all cases in trial um, be suspended and not be continued for 60 days. Um, During this initial period of time, once we saw the court start to close, And with the governor's order, we began a um, coordinated and uh, dedicated campaign to get to the governor's office and ask for an emergency order to help protect our members and the clients that our members serve. So our initial request was to have a uh, suspension of uh, an extension of the statutes of limitations the five-year to trial rule, and um, to have the rule in the CCP suspended, which required court reporters to be in the same room as the deponents. It took about uh, a week of pretty nonstop lobbying um, from our fantastic lobbyists and CEO, as well as some of our leaders and past presidents, Um, to get the governor to act. And and the governor did something pretty incredible. On March 27th, he issued an emergency order where he indicated he would like to see the three things that we had asked for come to pass. And he gave the chief justice broad sweeping authorities to make sure these new rules got put into place, as well as um, to ensure that the court get up and running in a safe um, and and coordinated way. Um, So at that point in time, our focus shifted to the Chief Justice and the um, Judicial Council, and we we took our lobbying efforts and focused them over there. And uh, since that time, we've been able to get four emergency rules uh, ordered to help our members, as well as a pretty comprehensive advisory So the four rules um, essentially are the SOL five-year and depo rules that I just spoke about, as well as um, the requirement that parties who are represented uh, send and receive and accept service by email, which will really help 
um, everyone's practices continue. And then the court issued an advisory which uh, allows for or suggests that minors compromises ex partes when the parties appear remotely um, and mandatory settlement conferences be held to the extent that the courts can ensure that those. So with, with that overview, um, Nancy, would you like to add some additional thoughts and perspective? Thanks, Micah. Really the first phase was trying to deal with these emergency problems so people could attempt to do some work on their cases, either by remote depositions or electronic service and make sure that the basic legal rights were not jeopardized. Now that we have secured the emergency orders on those topics, we're moving on to the more difficult and naughty problems. Because the courts are now examining when and how can they reopen and what cases are they going to hear when they do reopen. So now what we're trying to grapple with, and I know many of you across the state are grappling with, is what is going to happen with civil cases. So now we are in a conversation with the Judicial Council about whether there can be some uniform standards on how trials are reset. That possibly could vary from county to county, but we feel it is extremely important that there is some uniform guidance that helps the litigants, that helps the courts, that helps the clients who need to get their cases heard. So that is one issue that we are working on right now. Another issue that we are still working on very strongly is what can be done to have more civil hearings during this emergency period. Right now, people in many courts, but not all, are at a total standstill and they can't get motions heard, they can't do conferences, they can't do court call. And this is a, this is a terrible handicap and we feel that there needs to be some emergency provision of technology so that people can get some access to justice during the emergency period. So we're working on that now. But that is a harder problem because some counties have good technologies, some don't. And so uh, we are gonna try to see what we can do to overcome those obstacles. Now, various healthcare provider organizations have been lobbying Governor Newsom pretty hard to increase their legal immunity as a result of this pandemic. Now, at the time that we're having this conversation, on April 24th, the governor has taken no action. What do we know about what could happen? Last Saturday, the governor's office contacted our lobbyists to let them know what he was contemplating doing with respect to an emergency order. Um, and the information that we got, although we've seen no language, is that the immunities proposed and being contemplated are extraordinarily broad. This was no surprise to our experienced lobbyists. However, on April 6th, CAOC had already sent a letter to the governor anticipating requests for broad immunities in the healthcare space because we know that when there are emergencies, um, and we also know when there are uh, folks on the front line providing uh, medical care, we, one, want to keep them providing that care. But also we know that right behind that is going to be a request for additional broad and unnecessary immunities coming from 
big pharma, from uh, the medical associations, and from hospitals around the state. So um, we began our organizing again immediately. And there was a press event on Monday with some of our uh, coalition partners to help explain and expose why these immunities are too far from where we should be. Although we need to strike a balance between encouraging medical providers to do their jobs and to continue to help people, we have to make sure that malpractice and abuse are not immunized. Um, Nancy, can you share a little bit more about what we did and where we are on that? Thanks, Micah. Yes, it's been a very tumultuous week and it is still quite possible that the governor will act later this afternoon or in the coming days. As we found out about this, we were able to work with major senior organizations such as AARP, the Nursing Home Reform Group. We worked with the ACLU, the Western Center on Law and Poverty, all of whom have conveyed to the governor's office very forcefully their total opposition to giving nursing homes immunity for their actions. We all know that nursing homes already are a terrible problem with many bad actors out there and where they already have difficulty with infection control. So we don't think it is right that nursing homes should get immunity for elder abuse. That, there's no excuse for elder abuse, regardless of whether it's a pandemic or not. Second, we think any sort of special treatment of medical providers should only apply to the care they give to people who have the COVID virus or difficult decisions they have to make about care. It should not apply to people who go in for other types of problems to the hospital. So the pandemic should not be used as an excuse to not treat somebody who has a heart attack in the emergency room or not to give care that's up to the standard that we would expect in the state of California. So this is an evolving issue and we will see how it turns out in the next few days. But we have been very strong, some would say even fierce, in arguing that we already have strong protection for Good Samaritans, we have strong protection for volunteers, we have strong protection for medical providers already who act during an emergency and it is not necessary to go this far. And Nancy, we've already seen in other states requests for immunity from other sectors, not just the healthcare industry. Are we hearing any rumblings about that in California? Yes, there are rumblings about that also. The business community has already come in with a letter asking for protection for business in general uh, that provides goods or services in this crisis. Uh, but that doesn't mean that just because there's a crisis, they shouldn't be held accountable to the normal standard and not be negligent. So we are going to be very vigilant. Uh, we've seen across the country, there have been these attempts to use the excuse of the pandemic to just let businesses off the hook. Uh, but we really wanna be concerned that businesses do use appropriate cleanliness standards, infection control, as employees go back to work and as people start to come back into stores, 
they need protection. And we have to make sure that industry is up to snuff on that. Well, those of us who were around for the Great Recession of 2008 remember the severe cuts that were made to California's courts budgets then. The governor's revised budget proposal for next year is due out next month, and it's certainly going to be significantly different than his earlier proposal. Are we going to be able to avoid a repeat of the drastic cuts that we saw a decade ago? On that, JG, I'd say it's too soon to say. Uh, the courts are still digging themselves out of the hole. They've gotten some good infusions of funds in the last several years, but they have not entirely recovered. And one of the symptoms of that is we can see here in this crisis is they simply do not have the technological ability to operate that many of us do in the private sector. The courts are way, way beyond, behind on that front. So one hope that we would have is the budget could address that. They do need to have on a very rapid basis the ability to operate in the cloud, to operate remotely. It is just absolutely essential in this day and age. And certainly the pandemic showed the weaknesses there in the court's budget. Well, I know that the two of you and our advocacy team are gonna be playing a, a vocal role in trying to make sure the budgets go where they need to go for this next year, because it's, it's gonna be, um, it's going to be tough for everybody, but the courts have real, real needs at this point. Anything else that we need to put in the conversation at this point? I don't think so, JG. Just thank you so much for helping us um, spread the message of what we're spending our time doing on behalf of our members and all of our clients. Well, you're welcome. And things are changing quickly, so uh, I'm sure we'll do this again soon and keep everybody up to date just as quickly as we can when uh, we have changes that affect our members and their clients. So thank you, Micah. Thank you, Nancy, for being part of this today. Thank you, JG. So glad to be here. Thanks, JG. You've been listening to Just Us for Justice, produced by Chris Weaver, executive producer Eric Bailey. I'm JG Preston. We'll see you again soon. The Just Us for Justice podcast is brought to you by the Consumer Attorneys of California. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes. Music was provided by www.bensound.com. Questions or comments? Email us at justuspodcast at caoc.org.